one of the principles of an uh, alcoholic household is don't trust, don't talk, don't feel. And so um, I did not want to abide by those rules. <laughs> and I wanted to feel all the feelings for everybody. I wanted to express this, you know, that I was I was feeling, that everybody was feeling, and there was a way in which I expressed, expressed that by acting out. That was Elizabeth, talking about her family system growing up and the role she ended up playing within it. In Silent Superheroes, we often hear from individuals about their personal battle with mental illness. Most of us aren't an island. We have friends, family, and colleagues in our life that we interact with every day. When you know someone for years, your behaviour towards them leaves marks. This episode is about how our personal struggles change those around us. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, Elizabeth is going to talk about her upbringing as the child of an alcoholic, how that shaped her worldview and affected her work. She'll tell us about the life-changing news she found in her lunchbox and how a residential recovery program changed her mum. We'll hear about the night drinking with her brother that showed her how her mum's alcoholism had affected her and how, as a result of that night, she started her road to recovery. Finally, she'll share the various different approaches she's taken to healing. Remember, Elizabeth and I are just two people talking about our personal experience living with mental illness. If you're considering a change to your treatment plan, please consult with a trained medical professional. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I think we have a slightly different topic today, perhaps, than we've talked about in the past. In the past, we've talked about um, sort of the direct impact of mental illness. But today, I think we're talking about kind of the second generation effect of mental illness. So mm-hmm. why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about today? So I had the opportunity to hear about what James is doing through this podcast, and I felt like there might be an opportunity for me to share my story of what it was like growing up in an alcoholic household and kind of the effects of that on my own kind of journey of mental health. And so I thought that might be a story that would benefit your audience. Wonderful. Thank you. So let's go back in time um, to your childhood. Let us know a little bit more about how Scotch grew up. So I grew up in a small town in Kentucky, Danville, Kentucky. My dad was a doctor and my mom um, was a stay-at-home mom, in some ways an idyllic setting to grow up, but uh, my mom was struggling with addiction when I was growing up. And it wasn't, it's interesting, you know, uh, alcoholism takes on so many different forms. It was not necessarily, you know, bottles spread around our house and like this super chaotic necessarily environment, but um, what I've come to see is that it led her to be pretty emotionally and physically absent um, in a lot of ways as a mom. And my dad, meanwhile, you know, being a physician is not a, a easy career path. And so um, he was certainly um, absent in his own ways. And so um, between that, that's kind of what I've realized in a lot of ways was the effects of kind of growing up in a place where there just wasn't a lot of uh, influence or parenting and also not a lot of direction. And Somewhat chaotic at times, but definitely not necessarily the most nurturing, I guess, environment. Were there other siblings on the, on the scene? 
Yeah. So I had an older brother, um, four years older than I am, very different personality. Um, and it's, it's also interesting to look at the ways that both of us kind of survived that environment in very different ways. My response to that environment was, well, there's kind of profiles for different children within alcoholic systems. My profile that I kind of ended up fitting was the scapegoat in the sense that I was really outgoing and I was really verbal and I also acted out a lot. One of the principles of an alcoholic household is don't trust, don't talk, don't feel. And so um, I did not want to abide by those rules. And I wanted to feel all the feelings for everybody. I wanted to express this, you know, that I was I was feeling that everybody was feeling and there was a way in which I express it, express that by acting out. Um, whereas my brother, essentially, he was very quiet, did not want to rock the boat, um, was trying to keep the peace. Um, in some ways, I guess he was the hero, but there were some ways in which he was the absent child as well. And so he was kind of, in some ways, a non-factor for me growing up. We did our own thing. We very much kind of were not necessarily supporting each other and surviving this. Um, but we were just doing the best we both could. You were painting the picture of uh, alcoholism and you said it's, in this case, it wasn't bottles all over the place, etc. How did your mom's alcoholism show up? Most of my childhood growing up, even though she was a stay-at-home mom, my memories of her are that, you know, she just wasn't around very often. And I don't even really actually know what she was doing, honestly. Right. <laughs> um, in some ways, there were ways I knew she was kind of volunteering, but I don't think that she she felt very ill-equipped to be a mom. And I think that she really ran from those responsibilities in a lot of ways and just did not have a lot of confidence in her ability to navigate that. Um, we would butt heads a good bit. And I knew from a young age that I was stronger. I had a stronger will than my mom. And that actually, I think, as a kid, really scared me um, to know that I was kind of more powerful than my parents. So it's interesting as a kid to kind of know that that's really something you really need is kind of that person who will kind of stick up to you and and show you that they're looking out for your safety. And so I think more than anything, that's kind of what my relationship was like with my mom, so that I didn't feel safe. How did you then come to understand that she was an alcoholic? Yeah, so um, when I was eight, um, my mom notified us that she had decided to go to recovery I got a note in my uh, lunchbox that was basically saying, sorry, I'm going to have to leave for a period of time, but, you know, I'm doing this because I want to be a better mom, essentially. And, you know, um, I hope that I'll be able to come back and be able to be a better person. That was when I was eight and she was gone for probably about three months uh, during her recovery kind of process. How did she do once she got back? I think it was really nerve wracking for her coming back as it is, I think, for most people that come back from treatment in the sense that you're walking back into an environment. You've been in such a safe place that helped you stay sober and really is nurturing. And then you have to come back into that environment that has the stresses, you know, that you have to deal with, that you're going to have to choose a different coping mechanism beyond alcohol to deal with. I think she was nerve. There was a, definitely some nerves around whether my parents' relationship would survive that in the sense that my dad was not willing to stop drinking um, in order to kind of like make that adaptation. Um, so I'm from what I remember, I believe my mom ended up, we have like an apartment over our garage. And I think she stayed in that for the first period of time. But also I think because of her fear, she really also threw herself into AA as a support system, which is an amazing support system um, when you're trying to recover from that addiction. And yet, it was a continuance of the absence, right? It was just kind of a different way that she was absent in that sense. Did she ever reach a point where you felt like she was present? 
My relationship with her did improve a lot after she got back from recovery. I just felt less resistance to her. Like I felt like I didn't need to fight her as much, I think she too was in a more grounded place. So it was interesting. My, my like preteen years, which are tough for everybody (laughs) were when I started really having some challenging situations at school, which is friendships and things like that. And I realized that my mom was somebody that I could actually lean on at that point. And, um, she's actually a really gifted listener. And, um, that was in some ways where I feel like our relationship kind of blossomed. I was able to experience her as being present. So your mom got into recovery and sounds like stayed in recovery mm-hmm. fairly early yeah. in, your, in your life, which is, which is great. And yet it still left some wounds. So when did those, if you reflect, when did those wounds start showing up? Because my mom went to treatment early, we did have a positive relationship after that. And our family dynamic just in general shifted a lot. Um, my parents actually also both, um, as a result of that, really committed themselves to their faith. And that became this like kind of central part of our family that kind of um, helped, I think all of us kind of connect and bond on a deeper level. So, you know, my, my teen years, I really had a positive relationship with my parents and I was successful in school. I was active in sports. In a lot of ways, I looked like a kid who kind of had it all together. And so I was like, I'm doing great. Like there's no problems or issues here. And like, I don't think this was really a big deal for me in terms of like, and I saw that my brother, he started drinking at 13 or so. And Drinking became a big part of his life from an early point. But because I kind of in some ways got on this like Jesus train, that was really kind of nothing that I really wanted anything to do with. And I I was scared. I was scared that if I got involved with alcohol, that I too might become an addict. So there were a lot of reasons why I steered clear of that. I took some time off after college, lived in Colorado, and gave myself some time to explore before deciding what I wanted to do professionally. Um, And I ended up deciding that I wanted to be in higher education to work as a student affairs administrator of sorts. And so I got my master's and that was about 25 that I went to get my master's. And it was the first time where I really felt like I'd found what I wanted to do professionally. And it was really exciting for me. But I also just like threw myself in and saw the ways in which I could be really compulsive about my uh, work to a certain degree. When I was 27, um, I graduated from my master's degree and ended up um, deciding to work at Vanderbilt where I got my master's in. Um, I was doing career coaching for undergraduates. Um, and I really kind of felt like, man, this is amazing. This is like a dream job. And all this work I've put in, you know, I've gotten the result that I wanted. Meanwhile, I happened to have my family come down to visit. You know, it's, it is interesting to where those moments where the the spark just lights and you just can't deny it. And it was basically my brother and I had gone out in Nashville. Nashville is a great town to have a good time. And we were out at a bar and he had recently broken up with a girlfriend and was ready to rage. And he had set his sights on a girl who was at the bar and... I ended up telling him that I was ready to go home, I don't know, around midnight. And he was like, oh, I'm going to stay. Like, here's my credit card, like, to get home. And it just, like, opened up something within me that I realized, like, I was really angry at my brother for kind of just ditching me, (laughs) ultimately. And um, But one of the things they talk about in kind of recovery circles is, like, if it's hysterical, it's historical. 
And I really feel like that was a moment where I first kind of like realized, I don't believe anybody wants to take care of me. And it's kind of opening this wound that I'm realizing there's something here to unpack. And my reaction to this is is kind of exorbitant compared to the situation. I ended up opening up to my family about how I felt and that I felt like I didn't know how to ask people to take care of me. And I, and I like wanted that, but just didn't know what to even do with that feeling. It was the first time I really kind of had just a breakdown in, in my life. I just really kind of had my shit together. And it was just like, this emotion is just coming out of me and I have no control over it. And I don't know where it came from. And so that was really the moment that I kind of was like, there's something here that needs to be like kind of unearthed or at least explored. It's like Pandora's box cracked open all at once, right? So where do you go from there? I found myself emotionally kind of distraught after that. And I just was like, I don't know what to do and I don't know what's going on. I tried to talk to some of my friends about it and they were kind of, they just didn't really know what to do with me. And So that actually just made it worse because I felt really kind of isolated and alone and kind of trying to figure this out. So I did actually go to our EAP and sat down with one of their counselors and was just telling her what was going on. And she just said something to me that has just stayed with me. And it's like, this is the thing that needs to be worked out. And she was like, you're going to need to accept that you're never going to get the care from your mom that you really needed. And I just was like, I didn't even know that I was holding out for that. And it just rocked me that I was like so blind to this need that was kind of unmet and that I didn't know what to do with. So she referred me to a counselor who I was like, okay, now we kind of have an idea about what the thing is that we need to unpack. And ultimately, you know, it was like, I think you were more affected by your alcoholic household than you realize. So I was like, but it, you know, it was, you know, the minimizing. It was fine. I got my lunch every day. And I don't have a lot of memories of these hugely traumatic things. And so it was really easy for me to kind of be like, it wasn't that big of a deal. But clearly my emotions were telling me something different. When you look back now at your household and then your friends' households, do you see the difference? I think that there was so much effort in my household to manage appearances that I bought into that narrative and I didn't really know how to pay attention to what was actually going on. Whereas I feel like my other friends' households were not trying so hard to portray something maybe externally. And there was a little bit more willingness to be honest, I think, what was about what was going on. But then again, I don't know, everybody has dysfunction in their family. So it's not like I look around and like, everybody else had daisies and roses. And now I realize that I had, you know, uh, some shit, you know, like, (laughs) I don't know. So I don't know that I want to like paint that picture either. I asked for purely self-serving reasons, which is there was some dysfunction in, you know, in my upbringing, Mm. but I don't bear anyone, you know, any grudges for. But for me, I look back and now I can see it. But at the time, I couldn't see it because it was like, it's your whole world, isn't it? It's your family. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're the Pratt family. Like, this is how we work. We're smarter and better than other people somehow. And so I can, now when I look back, I see it. People in other families weren't like constantly treading on eggshells. Although ironically, many of my close, closest friends were from families where everyone trod on eggshells all the time. Mm. Because, you know, it's easy to be friends with someone like that. Because like, that person can come over. They don't feel weird. Just like somebody from a more 
normal family would feel weird if they're treading on eggshells you know, going around someone's house. So there totally. you go. Yeah. So your counselor got you into um, sort of a therapy or therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds like that was uh, productive. Where did you go from there? Like what was the next step after therapy in your kind of journey of learning and healing? You know, what's interesting, the, the therapy relationship was positive, though I actually, one of the things that I've realized is I think I went with wherever my insurance was best or something. And and I ended up later having another counselor that I got, I feel like, a lot more out of that relationship. And so I feel like really like you need to date your <laughs> your therapist and find out who you really jive with. And so while I'm grateful more than anything that I acknowledge that I needed support in this and then I reached out and asked for help, you know, uh, that's a big part of too, like growing up in these family systems is asking for help is really hard. So that was my first exercise in asking for help and acknowledging I needed something else, you know. Um, and not being so self-sufficient, which is another thing that happens when you grow up in an alcoholic family system. Were you suspicious of your therapist? They're like, what is it you want? You're not really <laughs> here just for me. What is it you want? Totally. Well, the trust thing, right? Like, I don't know if it was, what do you want? But it was like, you're getting paid for this. So do you really care about me? You know, like definitely a lot of skepticism about, you know, do you really, you know, are you really invested in me here? I think was more probably the question I was asking. Do you really see me? And I was at that point really very afraid of being seen for who I really was. And I didn't really know who I was. Because you were scared and you were lonely. Totally. And I'd spent a lot of time building this image of what I wanted people to think I was versus who I actually was. That's what was modeled to me, you know. My next step was that, as I expressed, that I was starting to talk to my friends about some of this stuff. And I just felt like I was kind of met with blank stares. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm 28 or so. And I, I do feel like I, one of the gifts I feel is that I I feel like a lot of people go on this journey and I actually probably hit it at an earlier point than a lot of other people do. But the bad part of that is that a lot of my friends just didn't get it. So I was actually talking to my mom about some of my, what I was experiencing. And she was like, you know, I really feel like you might benefit from going to Al-Anon. I didn't know a lot about Al-Anon. I knew my mom had benefited from being part of AA, which is a 12-step recovery fellowship. And I knew that Al-Anon was meant to serve those who are in relationships with the addict, whether it's you're a parent of an addict or you have a sibling who's an addict or um, you grew up in an alcoholic household. Um, ultimately, a lot of it, is, of it is realizing that there are two people in the relationship when there's, you know, an addict and a, usually a codependent who are kind of creating this dynamic that's dysfunctional. So I was pretty desperate at that point and was willing to try most anything that anybody suggested. And so I went to a meeting and, oh, it was just like, whoa, like these people are speaking my truth. And um, it was really a powerful experience, but it also scared me deeply. I had this fear that I was going to become one of those people who like... <laughs> was dependent on Al-Anon and I didn't want to become dependent on this thing. And so I was, and I didn't want it to become my whole life because actually, I guess probably I'd seen my mom let it become her whole life. You know, my mom very much leads with that being her, a big part of her identity is, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And sometimes I was really uncomfortable at times with the ways in which my mom would like, it seemed like this isn't really the appropriate situation to like lead with that or share that. But it was something. Buying, buying groceries or something. Like <laughs> totally, that. totally like the cashiers. The reason you see no beer in this is because I'm a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> Did we need to have that conversation? I don't know. I knew that I needed it, but I was also very afraid of what 
what it was going to require of me to go on this journey. And so it took me about a year, I think, of kind of popping in and out before I was like, okay, I'm going to do this and surrender to this process. You know, they encourage you to find a sponsor. And so I found a woman that I just heard what she shared and it resonated for me. My um, process of being an Al-Anon was just that I was actually start able to start talking about myself because I had really chosen relationships where I knew how to ask the questions and keep the focus on other people. And I was actually asking my sponsor to listen to me and hear my story and see me for who I really was. And that was a hugely powerful experience. I, God bless my sponsor because I, you know, one of the things they talk about is like when Al-Anon's talk, we go Al-Anon and on and on or something like, cause somebody was finally listening, listening to me. So I just like, we would have like four hour <laughs> marathon sessions and I just now look back and I was like, you are an angel. I would say if you like puns, places like AA and Al-Anon are really good places to go. <laughs> Yes. Because people had a lot of time to practice the puns there. <laughs> totally, totally. The quippy phrases are everywhere in recovery communities. You got to add a little levity and humor in the midst of working through this stuff, right? So anyways, Al-Anon made commitments to go to at least one meeting a week. And, and, and during the kind of the depths of my or my like really focused time in that community was going to as many as two or three meetings a week. And it just felt like self and like just such a container. Um to hold me in the midst of this process of unraveling some of this stuff for myself. So you found a community of people where you could ask for help and you could say what was actually going on yeah. for you. Yes. So there are people who are quite anti-recovery communities mm. like AA and Al-Anon. How do you think about, about that as somebody who's being kind of committed to a program like that? Do can you tell me is is the mostly the sentiment around the higher power element being something that people are not comfortable yeah. with or kind of the cult element? Yeah, there's the, the culty kind of feel. Sometimes yeah. people say um, people question the efficacy of the programs. You know, the um, wisdom of putting kind of untrained you know people sponsors kind of in charge of other people to an extent. So uh, there's lots of you know critique and criticism as there is with any you know whether it's taking medication for drugs or cbt or whatever like everybody wants to say that thing doesn't work but what's your what's your perspective yeah so it's interesting i actually don't go to any 12 step meetings currently and i think that it is something for me that created the container for me to be honest about myself for a period of time that i just needed to feel this raw emotion and have space, safe spaces to do that. And therapy to me was not enough. You know, mm -hmm. I needed another place to show up and hold this emotion and let other people help me carry it. I actually shifted from my Al-Anon fellowship to getting more involved in a fellowship called Adult Children of Alcoholics. It, it was interesting that I came in through Al-Anon, but really, truly Adult Children of Alcoholics was where I experienced probably the most healing. Al-Anon gave me a lot of really practical tools to know how to better navigate life. I had no idea what self-care meant coming into Al-Anon. Um, I had no idea how to keep the focus on myself and that I deserved my own loving attention. <laughs> I didn't have to live in this way where I was so focused on everybody else in my life. And even things like learning how to, they, one of the things they talk about is detaching with love. So my brother did end up being an active alcoholic as well. And so I really needed to practice 
letting go of kind of his decisions and um, giving myself the ability to say, you know, I just need to take care of myself and trust that his process is going to unfold as it's meant to. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without the support of Al-Anon. So I guess that's my take on it. And ultimately, I have come to a place where I'm like, I don't want to be solely identified as a child of an alcoholic. I don't want to solely be identified as a codependent. Like those are things that are part of my story. So I, I understand the pushback of like people being overly maybe identified with being part of these communities. Um, like you said, he was or exactly. is, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, but I think you can, if you, you can healthily pull what you need to from those communities and still maintain your own sense of self. To me, a lot of this journey is about learning to um, have your own inner wisdom and your and, and trust your own ability to navigate what resources you need at different points in your recovery process, you know, from whatever it is that you're recovering. I've noticed from talking to people with a mental illness that there's often a single moment when life changes from, well, this is how my life is and that's normal, to something is very wrong and needs to change. For me, it was waking up in hospital. For Daniel, in episode 20, it was getting life advice from a homeless woman. For Amanda, from episode 1, it was standing on the balcony thinking about jumping while her infant daughter slept next door. Or for Marnie, from episode 16, an offhand comment during an acting class. Elizabeth's story shows that you don't have to have direct experience of mental illness to get emotional wounds from it. The trauma of being around mental illness leaves wounds that need to heal, just like Elizabeth's. The healing process begins with a moment of awakening, as it has for so many of our silent superheroes. And, as you see here, healing leads to a different perspective, positive behavioural changes and better decision-making. In fact, I'll take this one step further. We all build up wounds through our lives, whether we live around mental illness or not. We all have behaviours that don't serve us. Often those behaviours are a result of our life experiences. It's still worth looking for those unhelpful behaviours we repeat over and over again, because that investigation could be a moment of awakening. And in the awakening, there could be the start of a journey of healing and living with more comfort. Speaking of which, let's dip back into Elizabeth's story and see what changes as she continues her journey of healing. So your journey started with your EAP counsellor who got you in touch with a therapist. You went to Al-Anon, ended up at Adult Children of Alcoholics, and right now you know, you're know you in a different place. You kind of moved on from some extent to that. So it feels like each of these resources was the right resource for that point on your journey. If you could like summarize, what do you think you learned or how did you move as a person between each of these stops? It's interesting to go back and think about what were those pivot points and what was it that led me to say, I'm, you know, I'm curious about that. Ultimately, I think it's my curiosity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I was really hurting when I decided to get in, explore Al-Anon and it felt like at the time, like it was what I I needed for that immediate kind of bandage. And then I'm trying to remember how I even found out about adult children of alcoholics, but there's a lot of overlap. There are people who are in both fellowships. And so maybe somebody suggested I go and check it out. I think 
Um, actually maybe even another therapist that I was seeing was suggesting that I look into that fellowship as well. And, um, so it was little nudges, you know, along the way that then I was like, okay, I'm curious. I'll show up and see what it's about. Um, and so when I got into the, um, adult children of alcoholics fellowship, um, I, what really resonated for me about that is I didn't, one of the things that was, I struggled with in Al-Anon was like, sometimes I think I have the characteristics of the alcoholic too. And if these people knew that about me, they might like skewer me, you know, like, and that was not true. But in my mind, I I did feel a little bit like I have this, I have an addictive personality too. And, um, and so anyways, in adult children of alcoholics, it's basically like, Hey, look, you were influenced by both these people. So you have both of these qualities and characteristics within you. And that felt so integrative to me. To, for me to be able to accept that, like, I have compulsive parts of my personality that, you know, I seek things that are that are about numbing out, you know, and honestly, work is is a big one for me. Yeah. And so that's an interesting, we'll pull that in, I know, at some point. But um, so anyways, each step has helped me feel more integrated, I guess, in terms of kind of all of the things are true. Let's talk about work. You've been on a journey of healing. I'm assuming there's a parallel journey of things happening at work that maybe could have happened a different way if you'd healed sooner. Mm. That makes sense. So why don't you walk us through kind of how the wounds of growing up in an alcoholic household showed up in your work? Um, I do feel like I want to use this as a moment to read the laundry list of the alcoholic or adult children of alcoholics. Okay. Um, Because I feel like these, I see these most prevalent in my work settings in a lot of ways. Um, And I I think it might resonate for some people who are listening, hopefully. If I may describe, uh, this is a large red book, which is what, two inches deep, I would say. (laughs) At least, maybe more, two and a half. There's a lot of wisdom in there. All right, hit us with uh, with the laundry list. So these are essentially what are seen to be the characteristics of adult children of alcoholics and people who grew up. Um, and and the fellowship also says that we are for people who also just grew up in dysfunctional families in general. So the first one is um, we became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. Definitely a lot of opportunity to work that out at a workplace. Um, two became approval seekers and lost our identities in the process. Also a really good place to work that out at work. Um, three, we are frightened by angry people and any personal criticism. <clears throat> Performance reviews are awesome. <laughs> Four, we either became alcoholics, marry them, or both, or find another compulsive personality such as a workaholic to fulfill our sick abandonment needs. Five, we live life from the viewpoint of victims and are attracted by that weakness in our love and friendship relationships. And I would say also probably your work relationships. Um, Six, we have an underdeveloped sense of responsibility and it's easier for us to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. This enables us not to look too closely at our own faults. For me, that's led me to be overinvested a lot of times in my work environment and that trying to control things in that environment. And also presumably as a career coach and through other work that you've done, you are, I mean, literally by definition, you have to be completely focused on the needs of others. Totally. Seven, we get guilt feelings when we stand up for ourselves instead of giving in to others. Um, so using your voice at work is challenging. Um, using my voice at work. Um, eight, we became addicted to excitement. So there have definitely been times where I've chosen workplaces that have a lot of chaotic dynamics. Nine, we confuse love and pity and tend to love people we can pity and rescue. 
Um, sometimes that plays out with like coworkers, kind of who I would befriend in a work environment. 10, we have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods and have lost the ability to feel or express our feelings because it hurts too much. Work is a really great place to stuff your feelings Absolutely. and run away from them. Yeah, please don't bring them to work. <laughs> yeah. 11, we judge ourselves harshly and have a very low self of, sense of self-esteem. So I, I definitely have sought to uh, address my self-esteem by trying to achieve at work. It's like, oh, I'll feel better about myself if I achieve at work. 12, we are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order to not experience painful abandonment feelings, which we receive from living with sick people who were never there for us emotionally. So I stay in jobs too long often <laughs> that are not good for me or environments because I like get attached and I really have a hard time kind of walking away. 13, alcoholism is a family disease. We became para-alcoholics or codependents and took on the characteristics of that disease, even though we did not pick up the drink. And codependents are reactors rather than actors. Yeah, lots of room to like think about this in the context of work. So I guess to paint a bigger picture, uh, so I started my career as a career coach and ended up, I, I loved higher ed for a lot of different reasons. I love the community feeling of it. I love that people are exploring ideas. Um, but I also found that it was, um, I wanted a faster pace. I wanted more excitement. And I also felt a little bit like my ego wanted like more of a challenge. And so I ended up deciding that I wanted to move over to the private sector. And I um, felt like the one of the easiest transitions would be to um, do college recruiting. And there was an opportunity that opened up a, at a healthcare company corporation in Nashville. So that led me on a path to basically starting a career in HR. And um, my then from there, I ended up because I also you know, some of my excitement seeking was like this big corporate thing. I don't know if this fits for me. I like to move fast. Um, I don't really like process and procedures and all the bureaucratic rules I have to follow. Um, and I feel like maybe I'd like to explore what it would be like to be in a startup. So um, the opportunity presented itself to build out um, the talent program for a marketing agency. When I look at the role that work has played at different points in my journey, when I was a career coach, that was really when I was starting to get into my recovery process. And it felt like a life raft. Like it was the one thing in my life that felt like I knew what was going on. And I like really latched onto it. And I actually feel like work was a huge gift for me in that time when I was just really kind of overwhelmed, honestly, by a lot of the emotions that were coming up. Um, and it was a very supportive environment. So, and it wasn't a very demanding work environment. So it actually felt like a really safe place for me to start that process. Meanwhile, going forward to this marketing agency, that was the environment where I feel like higher power universe decided we're actually going to model what it was like for you in your alcoholic household. So you can actually work through this shit on a deeper level. <laughs> and so the head of the marketing agency was a narcissist and, um, very drove the organization through fear and control. And, um, at any one moment, you never knew who was going to be the scapegoat because there were no problems in the organization. And if anybody said there was anything that was wrong, you are likely going to be fired. Um, so definitely don't talk, don't trust, don't feel were the rules that govern that environment. And I was the HR person who was trying to take care of these people in the midst of this environment where I knew that people were really struggling. And it was a very intense, you know, billable hours where there's just like people are putting in a lot of their energy and time in their work. And really their mental health I saw was really 
being threatened by being in that environment. And I felt very powerless to protect them. So that was also, I was like, I think that these are the ways that I felt growing up in my alcoholic household that I didn't even realize. So it helped me access, like if it was, it goes back to the, if it's historical, it's hysterical, it's historical. And I was just triggered left and right in that work environment. And yet I think that is the power of work in our healing process that when we look at it, like this is being put in my path because I'm supposed to be dealing with this on a deeper level and it can serve me versus me just feeling like, I've got to get the beep out of here because (laughs) this is not a positive environment for me, which inevitably that was a decision I needed to make for myself. But in the meantime, I really did want to uncover what was coming up for me. It sounds like maybe in that marketing agency, you were reprising your role from your childhood. I forget what you called it. Yeah. Oh, um, so when I was, I was the scapegoat in my childhood. And so there were ways in which I, it's interesting. I was not as comfortable playing that role in, in an adult way because I was really afraid of being on the receiving end of the scrutiny of our CEO and, and being fired. You know, I wanted his approval, um, even though I really didn't respect him. And I actually really thought he was not a great person. <laughs> um, he would, but you I'm know, getting that. Yeah, right. <laughs> He was doing the best he could too, though. I, I feel like it's 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 easy to judge. And and you know, I learned more about his growing up and he was adopted, and there were a lot of probably issues that he had as a result of kind of his family of origin issues. So I think that it's always helpful to look at what people other people bring to the table as well. You know, that is so true. And I think people who've been through some kind of recovery program maybe are more attuned to it. Like when you have to look at all the things that cause you to show up in a way that you weren't choosing to show up yeah do you know what i mean at times very in very dysfunctional ways and when you look at that and you start to heal and put that right it enables you to look around at these other people not with pity not with anger but with like some kind of acceptance of like i think i see how some things that happened in your life are sort of still showing up for you Mm -hmm. and you know i wish you the best like i wish you good fortune to find those things and work on them because life can be better. And I can think of a few specific people I've worked with where, you know, I, I feel that way. Hurts me less to take that compassionate stance too. Cause really holding on to that, like judgment and anger and frustration really, you know, the whole thing of like, when we forgive other people, we're actually freeing ourselves. Right. Um, or at least see people through a compassionate lens. I think that our hearts are also happier. <laughs> Don't know if that's scientifically proven, but, mm. you know, my experience has definitely been of that. So after you uh, worked at the marketing agency, mm. you know, each step, it feels like you're kind of healing a little bit. So where did you land next or where have you been most recently? And how's that experience been different for you as a result of the work you've done? I stayed at the marketing agency for about two years and I really took my time. I wanted to make a decision that was about moving towards something and not away from something and not be driven by this reactivity. I wanted to be like, no, I want to decide what I want out of my life and make choices that align with that um, versus just kind of running essentially from discomfort or pain or um, difficult situations. And so I went on a series of retreats and um, it was really a powerful time for me to really tap into who I really am and what I really want. And I ended up deciding I really wanted to also let my heart lead my decision versus my head. And I decided to move out to Seattle. 
So I quit my job and I moved out here and I did not have a job when I moved out here and decided I'm going to kind of reprioritize my life because I've been letting work be too much of a priority. And so I spent the first two months just exploring the Pacific Northwest and really kind of healing myself from that difficult work environment and really trying to kind of let go of that toxicity so that I could enter a new work environment from a place of like actually being excited about work again. I do love to work. I love to contribute. I love to collaborate. And yet I lost sight of that um, as a result of being in that work environment. So um, I ended up deciding to work at a company called Code Fellows, which is an immersive software development training program in town. And it really felt like I had done a lot of work around my values and it aligned a lot with the values that I wanted to pursue at that point in my life. So they were very focused on diversity, helping diverse and underrepresented talent to make that pivot into tech. They were also focused on giving people a second chance. And there were just a lot of ways in which I was like, this aligns with kind of the impact that I want to make um, in this next chapter. My role was basically going out in the industry and developing partnerships with it, with companies, which is actually how I met James. <laughs> and um, so I met some really amazing people in my time at Code Fellows who also had this vision that we want to change the mindset about talent within the tech industry. David White quote that essentially has kind of continued to help guide and direct my decisions about my career. That is um, basically if, if something doesn't bring you to a life bring you alive, it's not big enough for you or something. And essentially, I was like, this feels like a big enough mission that I like am energized and motivated and excited about changing the perceptions of talent in the tech industry in Seattle. Learned a lot from my role. Um, feel like I was stepping into my power in a lot of ways and using my voice a lot more in that position. So after my voice had really been squashed within this marketing agency, I chose an environment where I was able to influence the leadership more. We did a lot of interesting, cool things, and um, I really trusted myself a lot more within that environment. I continue to take up more space in the universe, I think, each job choice I make. And then I also continue to make choices that feel I have enough trust with myself and resilience to make the move out to Seattle and know that I, I don't know what's going to happen, but there's something that feels good to me about this and I will land on my feet. I'm going to take this job with um, Code Fellows. I haven't done business development before, but like I trust myself that I'll kind of navigate you know, this environment and I don't know a lot about the tech industry. So there came a point where I realized, oh, I think I am an entrepreneur and I think that I have this spirit within me that wants to express itself. One of my friends told me, you know, she was like, the reason I think you're going to meet, this is like last summer, and it wasn't really something I'd actually owned yet. And she was like, I think you're going to be an entrepreneur because you're somebody who looks around and you're not satisfied with the existing solutions. And then you're, you're like, okay, I'm going to have to build the thing. That has continued to kind of be a little bit of a, a motivator, I think, along the way for me. So anyways, I left my job in February and right now sitting in a lot of ambiguity and that like willingness to be uncertain and willingness when people ask me what I'm doing to be like, I'm figuring it out. I'm prototyping a number of different things is just something I never would have had the ability to do both from a perspective of needing to be in control and also needing to have my image perceived in a certain way at other points in my life. Um, and it's like, no, my life is, f you know, for me. And um, I believe that there is a bigger purpose that's calling me and I really want to live into that. There's this cycle that's forming in my mind, which is if we go back to the start of your story, living in an alcoholic household is to an extent a very ambiguous environment. You know, what level of care am I going to get? Lots of attention through like, no one's going to talk to me, you know, for days, right? You know, if you lived in a certain alcoholic household, it's like, hey, who's going to get screamed at today or, you know, in the next five minutes, right? And it's so interesting that your journey ends in ambiguity, but it's a very different 
relationship to ambiguity yeah. or, or that I'm empowered versus disempowered? I think so, yeah. It's almost more than that. You've chosen to step into ambiguity on your own terms. You're more empowered in this particular ambiguity. That's really, really powerful. Thanks for reflecting that back to me. So when I listen to your story in this journey, I know that there are many, many, many more people out there who, you know, are at some point on your journey, you know, starting growing up in an alcoholic or dysfunctional, you know, household, showing up in work, carrying that, you know, baggage with them. You've also worked in HR as workplaces. What can we be doing to help those people on that journey? And giving this some thought, I'm preparing for a managing up workshop. And it's made me realize that there's a lot of opportunity to help people have discussions about how your family of origin impacts your relationship to leading or following, and also the ways in which you perceive authority. Whether you had a parent who was really conflict avoidant, and so therefore you're not really able to address conflict at work, it might be an example. Um, so how do you basically create bigger or create conversations where people um, can unpack some of that stuff for themselves and then have more compassion because that employee-manager relationship is you know, fraught with, with a lot of our baggage around um, what our relationship to authority is previously in our lives. So I think I heard three things in there. I think one is recognizing that people are bringing into the workplace things from earlier in their life, whether you like it or not. Two is having empathy for that, not just recognizing it, but understanding like that's just a fundamental part of the human condition. And then three, providing, it sounds like, training opportunities for managers, individuals to kind of learn more about how their view of power in the workplace, structure in the workplace might be influenced by other things in their life and help them choose how to work with that. Mm, yeah, totally. I'm going to give you the ability to go back in time to cross paths with Scotch at some point in the past and tell her something, help her on a journey. Where do you want to go and what are you going to tell yourself? I would go back and tell, and I actually have done this, like a lot of this process is about integrating all the parts of who you are in, in like this internal family systems kind of concept of like we have a little girl within us. We have a critical parent within us. We have a loving parent within us is kind of some of the concepts you explore through um, adult children of alcoholics. So I have gone back and basically talked to my four-year-old self who was so vibrant and like so powerful and um, just loving and just unapologetic about who she was and yet felt very shamed for who she was and felt like she was a problem. And I just would tell her, like, you're not a problem and you are beautiful and like your family doesn't know how to deal with you, <laughs> but that's about them and not about you. Like, don't lose that fire, you know, and like you, because you have a good heart, you're going to use that fire for good. She never did lose it, right? Yeah. Well, she did for a, pot, a time, but she's re rekindling. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up? I don't think so. This is just an honor to be able to share my story and hopefully um, there are some people who it resonates with. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. I'm certain there will be. Thanks for your time. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed Elizabeth's story. I'm fascinated by the way people make subconscious decisions and end up replicating the same behavior over and over again. Years ago, as I started my journey of healing, I noticed that many of my closest male friends 
had one of two characteristics. Either their mum was an emotionally difficult or emotionally absent person, or their mum was dead. As I went through my list of close male friends, my eyes got wider and wider as I saw this pattern that I had subconsciously replicated over and over. I can't exactly explain how I accomplished this. It's not like I was getting people to fill out a questionnaire. But the root was obvious. My mum was a difficult person to grow up with, emotionally unstable, and leaving little room for other people's emotions. In some way, I must have felt a sense of kinship with them. Through her work in Al-Anon, Liz started to see how growing up as the child of an alcoholic had affected the type of people she worked for and the chaos present in her work environments, even gravitating to emotionally needy colleagues so she didn't have to deal with her own emotions. Now you might say, I don't do any of that. But you do. You just haven't noticed yet. I had coffee with Liz recently. she just moved on from a position at a consulting company and was evaluating what was next. One thing was obvious. The decisions she was making were eyes wide open, no longer focusing on the things she thought she should do, no longer the things that made her look good, no longer the place where she can go and be the crisis manager. She's going to go where she can be her, the person who has shed the skin of being a child of an alcoholic. If you've enjoyed what you've heard in today's episode, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help other people tune in that might benefit from hearing some of the stories that we've told. If you'd like to hear about new episodes as they're released, you can sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com or hit the like button on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash silentsuperheroes. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash to help others find the silent superheroes podcast please leave a review on itunes or your favorite podcasting service